But really, when you're going, when you're doing design critiques, like which is something ultra important to growth as a designer, you have to have that kind of trust. You have to have that understanding that you're, you know, you're both coming from a place of wanting to make things better, not from a place of ego or trying to show that you know what you're talking about and somebody else doesn't. Hi, welcome to the UX and Growth Podcast. I'm Jeff, I'm a UX engineer at HubSpot. And I'm Matt, I'm a growth engineer at HubSpot. And I'm Austin, I'm a UX designer at HubSpot. Today we have a pretty unique topic. We're gonna talk about how you can apply design thinking principles to UX leadership. And in order to do that, we determined that we have to bring in an actual UX leader and somebody that knows knows about this stuff. And we were lucky enough to pull uh, an absolute expert, somebody that every every person in this room looks up to a lot, uh, somebody that possesses a lot of knowledge, but also uh, uh, delivers it in a very humble way. So we're very excited to have Tim Merrill, uh, HubSpot's Director of Product Design on the podcast today. Tim. Uh, tell us about yourself. Who are you? <laughs> wow, thank you for that great intro. <laughs> uh, so I'm the director of product design here at HubSpot. Uh, I have been doing UX and design for a long time, more years than I care to actually enumerate right now. <laughs> uh, but I got my start back in the dot-com days, uh, late 90s. Um, wow. Yeah, crazy. Uh, Back, with it, I, I always think of like which browser was the popular browser at that time because mm. we had to code for that. So, so people um, were designing back in the '90s for a while. They really <laughs> were. It seemed like you just put anything up there. <laughs> it was pretty close to that. It's nice. <laughs> a lot of uh, HTML tables used for layout. But uh, yes, yeah, so my first gig, uh, my first professional web design gig was at LendingTree. Um, it was a startup of 30 people at the time. I answered a newspaper ad to get the job. If that gives you any indication. I'm not, I'm not sure I know what that is. <laughs> Be thankful. Yeah. Yeah. I actually wrote a letter <laughs> in response to a newspaper oh, wow. ad. It's not even like an email response, right? So, uh, <clears throat> yeah, so I started there just as a, as a web designer doing HTML and design. Uh, from there, you know, I, I worked at different startups, a spinoff of LendingTree, uh, a few different agencies. And uh, at one point, I moved to an island and started my own agency, uh, mostly doing Drupal websites for people. Wow. This is the, yeah. you actually moved to a physical island. I moved to yeah. a, a literal <laughs> island. Yeah. yeah, not an island of my soul or yet. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it, it was Nantucket Island, which you guys probably know. Um, it really pulls it back into perspective there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's not, it's not like the yeah. Azores or anything. Yeah. <laughs> it's off the coast of Massachusetts, yeah. for those of you who it don't know. It has changed very quickly. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's somewhat remote. It's 30 miles out to sea, uh, and true. winters are, are fairly brutal there. But mm. having a job as a, as a um, uh, web designer running an agency was something that you could do from there. So it was nice. Uh, so I did that for five years, you know, um, working with freelancers, hiring subcontractors, developers and stuff to, um, to service small businesses. And then from there, I moved to the mainland and uh, worked for a couple different dev shops. Uh, one was like an expression engine shop, and then I worked for a, a Rails shop uh, here in Boston. 
And then from there, I went to a digital healthcare consultancy and uh, ran a UX team and mostly consulted with some large uh, health insurance agencies and helped them adopt lean, agile strategies or methodologies and kind of regroup in order to um, do the, perform those methodologies. Cool. <laughs> yeah. So, so then I'm here. All right. So something I think that we probably need to to handle before we dig into any of the experience that you've had here at HubSpot and some of the things that you've brought to the team and learned is basically just like, an, if you could give us an overview from your perspective, because there's like a million different definitions for this and nobody can really agree. What do you think design thinking is? What is design thinking to you? Mm-hmm. And and like how, 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 have, how has that played into your process? Okay. Let me answer that first question, Yeah, <laughs> uh, the first half of that. Uh, my understanding of design thinking is essentially that it's the scientific method. I mean, you are making a hypothesis about something. First of all, you're trying to understand a problem better and define a problem. You're making a hypothesis about a solution. You're rapidly testing that hypothesis, iterating on it until you uh, tack towards a, a solution that works best, right? Mm-hmm. Same thing that, uh, same way evolution works, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Uh, it's just iterations on something until it's optimized, until you have an optimized solution for a problem. So this is something that you can apply to design, or in your case, you found that you could apply it to actual team building. Yeah, yeah. Uh, unexpectedly and unintentionally, uh, I just, you know, over the past few years have been running UX workshops and um, design sprints. And so when I came into this role, I, I didn't want to come in and prescribe any kind of um, game plan. I didn't want to come in and say, like, this is the direction we're going to go in. I didn't have any kind of grand plan for how to run the team. I really wanted to come in and talk to uh, every stakeholder I could have coffee with in the company, including the design team, and, and really understand what the challenges that we were facing as a team were. Uh, and then allowing the team themselves to... Uh, come up with potential solutions to the problems and and work through them um, in an iterative manner, essentially. So we do a lot of the same kind of workshops that you would do for a UX problem, where we we look at our own processes and and come up with potential solutions for that and then try things out. We just do a lot of experimentation. Right. So... You came into this company and there was a pre-existing design team, pre-existing research team, all of these different things. And they didn't really have like, uh, at the time that you came in, they didn't have a real leader, right? So it was sort of your role to come in and say, how do we pull these teams together? How is all of this going to work? Yeah. Yeah. So uh, the design team had been kind of leaderless. I mean, they reported to people, but they didn't have a a true design leader uh, for about a year, I think, maybe Mm -hmm. before me. and they had gone through a reorganization as well, right? So you guys probably know this, but uh, they had been a centralized team, and um, then they became decentralized, where uh, they had several designers embedded on the product, like individual product teams. So uh, they also the researchers were reporting to um, a different person, so they weren't grouped together as one unit, um, which I think is is perfectly okay. But the design team did face some challenges because they didn't have a leader. They had some difficulty making decisions and um, 
having somebody make like a final decision on something or break ties or somebody to keep things moving at a cross product level, right? So you have all these people who are working on very specific challenges on their product teams, but when it comes to challenges that you have across the board, there was nobody to kind of drive those projects. How do you, um, so in terms of breaking ties, um, what are some challenges that you come across, like building people's confidence? Like there's a reason that ties are hard to break, right? And usually there's, uh, there's this feeling of, you know, lack of confidence or, you know, the fear of what could happen, you know, once you break those ties. Like with a new leader, is that what you're or, saying? Or like with new decisions, especially in this decentralized to centralized transition, mm -hmm. right? Do you mean uh, like I'm afraid to step on somebody's toes or I'm afraid to, um, like people are afraid to push back on others and, and that's how they get into ties? Or Actually, I was kind of hoping you would clarify as well. So oh, I guess, yeah, yeah, I guess sure. I'm not completely sure what you mean by that sure. at the same time. Yeah. Um, the funny thing is there, I really haven't encountered <laughs> many like uh, impasses with right. people um, where they just couldn't make a decision. They seem to actually be doing that really well. This was something that was explained to me when I started. Right. That like, uh, you know, sometimes people wanted to do it this way, other people wanted to do it this way, and there was just nobody to like make the final call. Um, I haven't seen that as a problem uh, really, but... But one of the things that we have focused on is building uh, trust and kind of vulnerability and like understanding on the team so people really feel comfortable um, being open and candid and pushing back on each other and, and all in the name of growing and, and really learning. Is that what you mean by building vulnerability? Because that sounds like a weird thing that you'd want to build at first. Oh, uh, yeah. Uh, I, so this <laughs> this comes from like Brene Brown and some other okay. people who are who are really uh, big into establishing trust and strong relationships through vulnerability, and uh, that's something that we started off doing. Like a couple weeks after I started, we had a team offsite, and a huge chunk of that was really trying to like um, it was team building, right? Part of it. So we were trying to help people understand where each other other was coming from. And we did some exercises where we, one of them was like a life map. We actually mapped out, we, we got into pairs and we had uh, one person mapping out what their life looked like, their challenges and their highlights, right? And the chat, like explaining the toughest challenges of your life to somebody is pretty, it, you have to open up to do that, right? So, uh, so through that, we built a lot of trust and understanding. Um, but really when you're going, when you're doing design critiques, like which is something, it, uh, ultra, in my opinion, ultra important to growth as a designer, you have to have that kind of trust. You have to have that understanding that you're, um, you know, you're both coming from a place of wanting to make things better, not from a place of ego or trying to show that, you know, you know what you're talking about and somebody else doesn't. Right. So I kind of wanted to <laughs> break the team down first so that we could uh, grow together as a team. So do you think that's like, would you say that's, that's a big part of your role as a UX leader because you know I think that especially when you're younger in your design career you think like one day I want to be the guy that sets the vision or sets the design direction and that's what you think of a UX leader or a design leader as being but the more and more that I talk to people like yourself the more I realize there's actually a lot more to that and a lot of it is like Build, building trust and vulnerability is what what else goes into that what else might people be missing about the UX leadership role uh, 
it depends on the leader, I think, right? Um, personally, I feel I would much rather have the brilliant ideas and the direction come from the team and come from, like I want them to own that and I want them to be the champions. I do not want to be like the, the central ego on the mm -hmm. team and have people just carry out my vision. I'm not the best designer. I would never uh, dare to think that I'm the best designer. I'm not Johnny Ives, but I do think that we have phenomenal designers on the team that we've hired and I like to trust them, you know? So I see my role as facilitating their ideas coming to life and just making sure that we are consistent in our design and that we do have a, a singular direction that we're trying to tack towards, that we're trying to go towards. And so, uh, and we, I don't know if you guys want to get into this or not, but we, we could talk about how um, we've kind of created a small team of people who are kind of the, um, the shepherds of that essentially like we've we've come up with four we've kind of actually voted on four people that we um, to create this new design language that we're working on right now and uh, that team will actually rotate out members it's a model that I saw uh, that Google adopted when they okay. came up with material design mm -hmm. so it's their material design language team uh, I probably don't know all the details of how they operate I would love to know more but, yeah. <laughs> uh, so we're trying this out and we have a group of four people who have been responsible for it and that, yeah, like I said, the membership will rotate on that. And really, they're not, they've created this vision with a lot of input from the team. So yeah. that the whole team feels like they do own this and will have rotating membership so that people will feel even more of a sense of ownership. So you really feel that the, the vision for the, the design language that you're creating, it has to be something that's collaborative and it's part of a team and it's not something that like some ambivalent dictator, creative director, whatever they may be, comes in yeah. and just spews their magic all over the place and then that's the direction? Yeah, I mean, I think that model can work. I, I think mm -hmm. it depends, you know, if, if you get the right person, like Johnny Ives or somebody, you know, somebody, or Steve Jobs with a, either a heavy hand and a lot of charisma <laughs> or, uh, you know, I, I just think that that's more rare than people realize to, to be able to find somebody like mm -hmm. that. Uh, but personally, I'd rather uh, adopt more of a servant leadership role. And I think that's something at HubSpot that we hold near yeah. and dear on the product team. So yeah, I think, I think that teams can adopt this model where the vision is coming from the team as long as there are some guide, you know, some, some guardrails and some people to kind of keep things consistent. What are, what are some of those guardrails? Like where, where do you have to set the stops as a leader? So we have to, as a leader, you have to make sure that people are, um, aren't producing something that doesn't make sense for the user. I, I really, we have such an autonomous team and we have people, you know, we've hired people that we trust so much that this hasn't really come into play. But, uh, you know, you wanna make sure that we are solving the, for the needs of the customer rather than uh, just creating some design vision that we think looks lovely, but doesn't necessarily um, map to the personas that we have, right? And so uh, I think as a leader, I'm just ensuring that we're, we're testing, you know, we're testing with users, um, that we are adhering to a, a sort of um, uh, a loose plan of how we go about developing this stuff, um, that people are working together, that they're collaborating in an efficient, productive way, um, that they are communicating out with the rest of the team and the larger company about what they're working on, uh, you know, that we have buy-in and support from the other departments that are going to be affected. That's another thing that I kind of see my job as, 
Mm-hmm. Um, making, so you know, like advocating for the team, basically? Yeah, yeah, politics, basically. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just have had a lot of coffees with other members around the organization, um, making sure that they are bought in and excited and, um, and that they feel a part of it and that they feel ready, like prepared for any changes that might come. Um, I approach those the same way that I approach the design team, like leading the design team. I'd like to hear people's challenges and how and how like the design team can help them and kind of offer us as a service or uh, you know offer my help with anything. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's worked really well to get um, kind of form a coalition of people who are excited about what we're doing. Gotcha. That sounds really cool. Yeah. Coalition of designers <laughs> like that. <laughs> so would you say um, would you say that for other uh, parts of the organization that you are the point of contact or that you would rather have, say, your designers be the points of contact? Uh, great question. So I like to give designers opportunities to do roles, like to be in roles like that. Um, although I don't feel like that's probably the best use of their time. I, right. I, I don't think that that's something that they necessarily want to be doing. If they do want to be doing, great. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, actually one of the designers is going to start going to a lot of the... Um, kind of the higher level project management meetings that we have, that's like the coordination kind of meetings with, with this big project. Nice. Yeah. Um, but in general, um, I kind of want, I'd rather like not have them have to deal with it right now, unless they want to. Makes mm-hmm. sense. Yeah. Cool. So you're coming into this team and you've got like this pre-existing structure and you're trying to apply a scientific method or a design thinking way Mm-hmm. to to figure out you know what what the ideal structure is what the changes are that you need to make how do you how do you do that what how did you come into the team and start to apply those principles like what, what were some of the things that you did sure uh, so one of the first things that we did uh, when I started it was like a couple weeks in uh, was to do a team offsite we had a two-day offsite uh, we went to like a co-working space in Cambridge uh, and aside from the team building things that I mentioned before, we also did, we started off with essentially a, a retro, like you might do on an agile team. And we talked about uh, what was working. Well, actually, we didn't talk. We just did a design exercise, right? People wrote it on sticky notes and stuff. And then we did affinity mapping <laughs> to look for themes. But we talked about what was working and um, what some of the challenges were. Uh, and then we prioritized the challenges. and. Uh, created a backlog essentially just like you would do on a on an agile team and uh, have been working through those challenges ever since what were some of the challenges that you faced that um, you can actually talk about I think talk about any oh um, okay <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah it's all um, it's all fair game uh, the biggest challenge that we uncovered wi- was a lack of consistency across the different products so, or not, I shouldn't say a lack, but uh, difficulty and consistency across the products. So we have these teams that are um, formed around functional areas of our products. And, uh, you know, they, they're cross-functional teams. They consist of a PM, a TL. I don't know if you guys have talked about this before, but they, mm-hmm. they consist of a PM, a TL, uh, some engineers, and a designer. Uh, and they're very autonomous. Uh, they're given a lot of freedom in the direction that they want to go in with their area of the world. And it, the, the model works phenomenally well, except when, except for projects that kind of cross the, the whole org structure. And so, 
you sometimes end up with situations where one team will develop you know, different components or different um, UX patterns uh, apart from other teams. And so some like a pattern may exist already and a team feels like they, they have like a different use case or they want to improve upon it. Uh, but sometimes you have the challenge where our component library or style guide doesn't get updated with a new pattern. And so over the past couple of years, it's just fallen into uh, you know, uh, disuse. Disrepair? Disrepair. There it is. <laughs> Thank you so much. You were so close. I was so close. Uh, yeah, it's just sort of fallen into disrepair. And, um, and people haven't been able to trust it as a source of truth. So, uh, so that's one of the biggest challenges that we have been working on. This is a problem that uh, I imagine you can kind of relate back to anyone that's working at a company that has more than one designer, right? Yeah. Which is design consistency, uh, consistency with patterns and quality, et cetera. So it's not just like big tech companies that have like 20 different teams, right? Yeah, uh, yeah. I mean, in my experience, right, you get this everywhere. Um, if you have multiple teams, uh, if you have multiple designers even, um, consistency is generally a difficult beast to tame. Um, you get, you know, it's so easy to just create a new style for a button or something, you know, even the smallest of components, but the, the bigger things are like uh, how you do modals in one area. If you don't have a, a single pattern for something, you can end up with a lot of different, um, a lot of different components, and that just, of course, creates cognitive uh, load for users and hesitancy and friction, as you mm -hmm. guys know. Right. <laughs> so, if I am looking, if I'm like a a business owner that's wondering, like, when should I bring in UX leadership to do the type of thing that you're doing? Do you think that there's a time in a company's trajectory where they should have like they should hire design leadership, or is it more dependent on the company itself? Uh, I'm sure there's a there's a threshold at some point where it's difficult for a team to work together. Um, I would imagine it's probably after you have four or five designers, maybe. Mm -hmm. I, I don't know the magic number there, but uh, you know when commu when communication and direction kind of becomes an issue. Also, uh, one of the challenges that we faced that I was brought in to help solve, or any leader would be brought in to help solve, is the growth of the designers on the team. Like, they, they had strong relationships, but there wasn't somebody like helping to set a path for them, helping to mentor them, uh, whose role it was to mentor them, you know? So that's also, if, you're, if you have a small company, um, something that you need to consider because people, designers want to be at a company where they feel like they can grow and that they can learn from somebody. Right? Mm -hmm. Especially because <clears throat> getting mentored by somebody is one of the best ways to grow as a designer. You right. know, having somebody to review and, and, and step in and help you. Are there specific things that you do to make sure that you're providing that to the people that work on your team, or is it more of a fluid thing? Yeah, it's both. Uh -huh. <laughs> um, it's uh, we do a lot of activities, um, and and these activities came. I mean, there's stuff that they were doing a little bit of already. Like they they had a design critique already. Uh, it's been like optimizing what they already had, and it's been introducing a few new activities. So, um, you know, they were already doing kind of one-on-ones with, with each other and doing the design critique. The design critique was, it had too many people in it and it was kind of getting out of hand. So we actually split it into two design critiques. And we spent a lot of time um, talking about how we run design critiques. You know, we like, 
dug into different books. We read some books. Um, we uh, it was just a topic of conversation for a while. And actually, one of the things we did after each design critique, we take about five minutes to do a little bit of a retro, like how did that go? What can we do better next time? What do we need to like change? That. So we're kind of like applying design thinking to our, our like the specific um, activities that we're doing. Um, uh, but we also do stuff like, uh, because the designers don't sit next to each other uh, and can't like lean over each other's shoulders and, and ask for help, we do something called study hall. So every day at like two or three, designers go to a certain corner of the building and uh, and just hang out together so they can ask each other questions. Uh, we also bring um, some speakers in, people to talk about different topics. We had somebody come in and talk about data visualization. We had somebody come in and talk about um, articulating design decisions, Tom Griever. Uh, who was thanks, also thanks on the show. You. Yeah, who was on the show. Yeah. Check, out the, and, check and, out the podcast that comes right before this one. <laughs> <laughs> Good plug. <laughs> Thank you, Tom, by the way, if you're listening. Yeah, Austin, uh, you brought him in, essentially. Um, so that was great. So uh, we, we also ha are grouped into functional, like larger functional teams, so people who work on editors, like there are a few different projects, or a few different teams that all work on a type of editor. Uh, people who work on it, like blog editors, or email editors, or page editors, they've kind of form a little unit, and they have their own little design critiques, they have their own meetings, same with um, some of our sales tools that we have. Okay, so this is yeah. cool, right? This is, mm -hmm. this is something that a lot of tech companies, especially once they get to a certain size, their design departments, are adopting this model where you have embedded designers in each product, and you already talked about like you know you got the tech lead, you got the PM, whatever, uh, and and like that's the team structure. But there are advantages and disadvantages to that, right? Like you could either have a completely together like centralized team where all of the designers sit together, they work together, and then they provide their services out to each product or each section of the company, right. or you can have them embedded. Why why do we take the embedded approach? Yeah. Uh, so the some of the challenges that you get when you have a centralized team are you have a difficult time prioritizing the work. So you have essentially you have PMs or teams kind of fighting over your time, and it becomes very difficult to prioritize that. You also have a difficult, a more difficult time context switching. So if you're a designer who one week is pulled towards a team to um, to create a flow for them or whatever. Uh, the next week you have to context switch and understand a completely different problem and you know uh, our product it has many many corners and uh, <laughs> alleyways and uh, lots of different user needs solved so um, it's pretty difficult to know the entire product even I <laughs> wouldn't say that I have a, a, a expert grasp on it yet um, but that, you know that's pretty common as you grow as a company. So um, you also don't have as much sense of ownership when you have a centralized model. Like you don't feel like as a designer you actually own part of the problem. Mm -hmm. so, but when you have a decentralized model, you're actually solving these problems with the team on a daily basis. You feel like you're part of the team. You feel like you own the problem. The own, you own the solution that you come up with. Um, and I, I, I just think that motivates you to to do a great job to um, to bond with your team you also have uh, shared learning when you sit with your team when you're embedded with a team so when you're doing research when you're talking discussing things when you're trying to understand a problem um, you're doing that together rather than 
uh, every time you go to work for a team, you get a download from them. You have like knowledge transfer that you have to start off with, and then kind of attack the problem from there. It's kind of like when you're uh, when you're a consultant or when you're um, a freelancer. Right? Mm-hmm. First thing you have to start off with is like, okay, please fill me in on what the problem is, and then I'm gonna help you try to solve it. This way, you're you're you uh, you're constantly learning with your team. You know, I'm seeing a pretty consistent pattern here, which is that relationships are crucial to creating a, a successful environment for designers to thrive. Yeah, absolutely. I, I, couldn't, I couldn't have said it better myself. Yeah. There was one thing that you more. said a little earlier that you might have heard me like run a little bit at because I just thought it was like the coolest thing, <laughs> uh, which is that you said that after doing design critiques, mm-hmm. you would reflect back and ask, how did that go? What can we improve on? Mm-hmm. That is mind-blowing to me that <laughs> like I have not seen more of that because like I been in situations like nightmare design critiques and mm. nightmare design reviews and they don't go well and yeah. design is, can be a very personal thing at right. some points and uh, what it sounds like with building relationships like you're trying to build that vulnerability so that you can be honest about things improve things yeah. uh, do you have any I'm really interested do you have any really specific examples of like when you're reflecting back on design critiques of like things that you, you realize like we can do better or did not go well yeah sure um you can take an approach, some people can take an approach to a design critique where a, a couple of different problems can happen. You can have people uh, want to solve the problem for somebody uh, rather than um, poke holes in it or, or, offer, or uh, try to under, ask questions to try to understand it better or ask questions to help somebody think about it differently. Uh, you can have people who, who just come in and say like, move this here or change this, you know, add more padding here or whatever. And you know, the problem with that is, uh, Number one, the designer doesn't really learn a whole lot from it. But number two is that you're making a lot of assumptions about why the designer did something, right? So you may not completely understand the the background on that. Uh, But you also get, you know, you can get, people have different personalities and different styles, right? So sometimes they can offer uh, suggestions or they they can even ask questions, but sometimes it can come across as I know best or it can come across as like a, a, an ego thing you know um, so one of the things that we've tried to do really hard is, is to hire like to screen out egos as we've been hiring so mm-hmm. um, really trying to build a team full of humble people full of people who just want to learn get better grow uh, and help each other out yeah so yeah. thinking about this I've I've worked with design leadership that Sometimes, like some leaders that I've worked with have been prescriptive in mm-hmm. their feedback. Or, and this is not just with designs, it's with processes, with everything. It's like, this is, this is what I think that you should do, mm-hmm. right? Uh, and then others have taken an approach which is more like, this is the problem that we have. You know, what is your proposed solution as the designer? Kind of putting the onus on the designer. Yeah. Do you think that there's like do, does one of those? Because I like I have a personal preference, but it may just be my personal leadership style, right? Mm-hmm. Do you think that one of one of those is a better way to lead a design team, or are they pretty even? Uh, I wouldn't say one is better. Actually, I think one of the things that we do in design critiques that mm-hmm. we start off with is ask the designer what kind of feedback they want. Because some designers, especially uh, people who are, who are starting out, actually want and, and need a little bit of suggestions. Like they want sort of prescriptive, like you might try doing X, Y, Z rather than um, this, I see something that could cause a problem you go figure out how to solve it. Like I could see, you know, mm. this could cause mm-hmm. friction here or this, you know, uh, 
just poking, like looking for areas for improvement rather than being prescriptive about it. So I think there's a place for both. I mm-hmm. think that they're, they're really important, and it depends on the desi- what the designer needs at the time and where they are in their process, even like where they are in the in the design process. Right? So probably the takeaway there would be understanding that there's a place for both, but not sticking exclusively to one side or the other. Yeah, I, yeah. I, I, I think it comes down to like asking the designer to mm-hmm. like what they what they're looking for. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yep. I, like that. I was going to make a comment about this earlier, right when Matt was bringing up how cool he thought the design critique stuff was. Um, but it's <laughs> it's like in all of these situations, it's very design thinking, scientific method, taking assumptions that are assumptions and proving them one way or the other. Um, and I think at its core, it's not a very complicated thing, right? And you just, it, you seem to be taking that and taking it at every level and going, <laughs> how can we you know prove our assumptions here? How can we go up a level and prove our assumptions here and bring it all the way to the top and all the way to the bottom? Uh, and it seems to be working incredibly well here. <laughs> Thanks. Yeah, you're welcome. Uh, do you do you think that there's ever a time that it could fail though? Where like oh yeah, I was it's thinking it, that earlier. Well, like, that's, yeah, that's yeah. the thing about design thing is isn't you're supposed to fail. Like you're it's it, oh okay, it's yeah. intended. Oh, to Oh, that's fail. not fair. You oh. can't. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> like you set me up. It fails for all that. the time. That's the point. Yeah. That's the point, right? That you're looking for fail. You're, you don't want to fail, but uh, failure is learning. So, yeah. mm-hmm. but I mean, there's probably situations where like you can't rely on that model because you fail once too big and. It just well, doesn't so go well. I'm part thinking of that, like, yeah, yeah. I don't know. Part, part of the model is, um, well, I don't know if that's necessarily true. You you want to you want to have small iterations. You want to try. You want to like reduce the number of variables that you're testing, right? Mm-hmm. So that your your failures are are managed, I suppose, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. I, I was thinking of it as as an example there, like a product redesign is a crucial moment where you're just kind of in some situations going all in mm-hmm. if it's like a full redesign and it's not an iterative flow yeah you know yeah. but we've talked about this right yeah yeah <laughs> oh yeah we have yeah <laughs> yeah i mean so one of the things that we're being really careful to do is test all, all along the way yeah you know yeah do you think that there like do you think that there are any specific qualities that you look for when when you're you're building your team, or does it depend on who's already on your team? Like, mm-hmm. you because you basically for a little bit of context for anybody listening, Tim joined the company, and then a shitload of people followed him. <laughs> you can swear on this podcast. Yeah. <laughs> Why did you guys tell me that? Are you really back on us? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Quite possibly. Thank you for being yeah. so polite. So for all of you who don't <laughs> no like bad problem. words, you should probably stop now because we're about to turn it up to 11 to make up for lost time. Yep. <laughs> anyway, what were saying? of expletives. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so you were saying, yeah, we, we, we ballooned. The company, uh, the design team ballooned after mm-hmm. I started, right? Mm-hmm. So we had... Uh, Eight something like eight designers or something. Yeah. Uh, and now we have a team of twenty five designers and researchers. So, right. And that's in a span of seven, six to seven months. Are there things that you look for when you're when you're finding those people, bringing them on board? Because you you interview a lot of people, but like the hiring rate is that's a different thing, right? Right. So. Um, yeah, there are, there are a few characteristics. Uh, I mostly look for people that uh, that will be <laughs> that you'd want to work with, right? So I look for character mm-hmm. a lot. Um, I look for people who are going to be um, independent and proactive, but also honest, trustworthy, humble, um, gracious, uh, selfless. Um, 
people who are curious, who are good problem solvers. Uh, very tactically, I mean, I look for people who have a strong visual design sense. Um, uh, I, I tend to look, I tend to place more weight on that than a UX methodology, any particular UX methodology or, or like, acti- you know, familiarity with skills or, I mean, uh, with activities or um, process. Uh, although I think uh, having a, a solid design process is a, is is fantastic. You know, yeah. it's pretty important. I think because it's easier to teach those things when they're here. Yeah. Yep, you got it exactly mm-hmm. yeah. right. And we have a, we have a, we have a lot of support for that. Visual design is a little bit harder to teach. I mean, we we we, we do have a mix of um, of uh, expertise and skills on the team. We have some people who are stronger in um, information architecture over visual design, um, and then other people who are just stronger visual designers. And so I do try to to create a balance of that on the team so that we can help each other out and we can learn from each other. Um, but visual design just definitely seems a little tougher to, to teach people, right? right. Mm-hmm. It's like uh, you pull people off of uh, like Dribble or like, mm-hmm. like do you, I imagine maybe you see people and you're like, we got to maybe interview that guy or hire that guy. Um, yeah, we, we just get so many referrals. We get that's, lots that's of people fair. who like yeah. pass pass people my way or like can you have coffee with this person I just know that they're a phenomenal you know designer um, and then we'll go and look at portfolios but we do have a recruiter on the team somebody who's like dedicated to recruiting for uh, the design team and the product management team it seemed like you're pretty involved in the general uh, UX and design community in Boston as well which I'm sure helps a ton <laughs> I've tried to be yeah uh, I pulled back a bit because I had a baby in January but uh, <laughs> prior that, to that I'll do that yeah Prior to that, um, yeah, I tried to go to a lot of uh, meetups and um, be active in UXPA and um, and uh, dribble meetups and stuff. So, mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, I I love meeting new designers around Boston, just hanging out with people. Um, Build Guild was another one that I used to go to. Um, started the Worcester Build Guild chapter. <laughs> Little known fact, there were about three people who showed up for it. <laughs> so, so CTA for this podcast, if you want to meet Tim, no, no, chance to Worcester. no it doesn't even happen anymore. Oh, it's on Nantucket now. It's been moved. To Come Nantucket. to my island. <laughs> um, yeah. What about, a, what about a bad hiring decision? Has there ever been a time where you, you feel like you realized you hired the wrong person or has it always gone smoothly knock on wood really <laughs> yeah That's so, awesome. so, i'm not saying just at this company yeah. i'm saying like you know, you know in general yeah um no so far so i've hired contractors that have gone bad mm-hmm. uh, that, have, that have been pretty difficult um but not here uh, so far it's been great and we have a we have a whole team of people who interview so mm-hmm. we have we have a lot of per- different perspectives that we get we, we include engineers and pms in our design in our interview loop right. so um so far the team's done phenomenal that's, that's interesting cool. it's, yeah. it's interesting that you've had worse luck with consultants <laughs> like i wonder to what extent do you need to apply your regular interview process to consultants? Because usually when you hire a consultant, there's time constraints or resource constraints or something along those lines, and you need to push the project forward. Yeah. But you also don't want to sacrifice uh, like the quality of work. Right. And actually, those those contractors were in the past and not at HubSpot. Yeah, yeah. Nobody that we've hired at HubSpot. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, it's, it's tougher to, to interview a contractor, especially if you're doing it remotely. Mm-hmm. You know? mm-hmm. Um, you can look at the work that they've done before uh, and get a sense for that. But like professionalism is really hard to uh, screen for with that. Uh, testimonials help, like um, referrals and stuff. 
but um, you know with the freelance world you, sometimes you get people who just have situations where they have to like bow out or disappear or things like that you yeah. know mm -hmm. so this was really good I think some of my takeaways guys you can chime in as well but taking a scientific method approach to team building and not being prescriptive right off the bat when you come into a team but instead listening and then making small pivots over time and not just applying one big methodology to a team because every team is different that seems to be really important relationships making sure that that as a UX leader you're facilitating relationships and and upholding those seems to be really important and uh, and regularly meeting with your team and having retrospectives on on ways to improve things yeah I, I really love that relationship one because it's kind of like rather than just trying to look at uh, a designer's work at face value and saying like, why is this good, why is this bad? You're kind of asking the question of like, what is their process, what is going well, what needs to be improved on with the relationship with the team, and it just has like this cascading effect in the end, mm -hmm. which I think is really interesting. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Well, Tim, it's been so great having you here. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I really appreciate you having me on. Yeah. Yeah, thank you so much. Do you, do you miss Nantucket, by the way? I do. Yeah, you do? Actually, yeah. I don't. Yeah, I don't necessarily miss miss living there year round. Gotcha. Yeah, <laughs> but I, don't I miss you. yeah. <laughs> it's so, cold up here. So if, if anybody listening wants to get in touch with you, and or maybe they they want to learn about how they could come on board at HubSpot or something like that, what are some good ways that uh, they could reach out to you? Sure, uh, they can um, connect with me on Twitter. Uh, it's probably the easiest way, or LinkedIn. So Twitter, my handle is. Uh, T-I-M-E-R-I-L it's basically my name with all the redundant letters taken out <laughs> uh, they, so yeah you can connect with me, with me there or you can look for Tim Merrill at HubSpot on LinkedIn um, you could I, I, those are probably the best two ways cool yeah, yeah. please feel free yeah <laughs> alright uh, for any of you out there who uh, are even a little bit interested in talking to anybody that's not our guests, which I don't blame <laughs> you if that's not the case. Um, we do have a small email address. It's uh, hello at uxandgrowth.com. Um, we are looking forward to hearing from you. And if you're sending questions to us that actually should go to Tim, we will forward them. No worries at all. Uh, thank you so or, much. Or we might pretend to be Tim. We, See how that goes. We might, <laughs> might, might be fun. No Experiment. guarantees on yeah. anything. <laughs> well, thank you so much. Have a great rest of your day.